This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. And on Sportsnet 360 as well, although let's see if I can last the uh, complete two hours today. Welcome to the program. The NHL season now officially underway. Three big games yesterday and already... Somebody has a hearing. Brett Howden of the Vegas Golden Knights has a hearing for the hit on Brandon Tanev last night. So George Peros, head of the Department of Player Safety last season, you got off easy. Whenever I would check in, anyone there would always say, don't talk about how it's been really quiet and there's no suspensions. The guys have been really good. Getting at it early, uh, Brett Howden uh, will have a hearing with the Department of Player Safety uh, for the hit on Brandon Tanev. So last night, oh, by the way, Elliot Friedman stops by here in a couple of moments. Eric Engels from Sportsnet.ca. Check out his latest, by the way. Uh, really good Q&A with Martin St. Louis of the Montreal Canadiens, their head coach. Some really fascinating stuff about processing information and how your brain works on the ice. Like when you sit down with Martin St. Louis, Get ready to sharpen the pencil and pay attention because you're going to school. This is a really good piece by Engels, really good Q&A with uh, Martin St. Louis, sportsnet.ca. Uh, I encourage you all to check it out. Uh, Wednesdays means Greg Wyshynski Day. Yes, MVSW Redux continues. Uh, Greg kicks off our two, Gord Stellick, uh, who covers the Toronto Maple Leafs for us here. Uh, we'll stop by as well. It is Toronto and Montreal, one of seven. Well, there's seven Canadian teams in action tonight. Uh, it is Scotiabank Wednesday Night Hockey. It is day two of the season, uh, but day one, with all due respect to Tampa and Nashville, uh, a dominating first period by the Tampa Bay Lightning and a pretty bad first period yesterday by Nashville. Holy zone entries, Batman. Uh, With all due respect to that game, with all due respect to uh, the banner raising and the uh, Vegas Golden Knights pretty much having their way with Seattle once they got past the first six or seven minutes of the game where it did seem very much like the Vegas Golden Knights stood around for a banner-raising ceremony. Man, Vegas just laid into Seattle yesterday. The story yesterday, though, was Connor Bedard and Sidney Crosby, and most specifically, Connor Bedard and how would Connor Bedard do in his very first game. And he comes away with one assist, five shots, 21-29 of ice time. Uh, two for 13 on the face-off dot, but that's to be expected. And speaking of face-offs, did it not seem to you like when you when you look back at that opening face-off between Sidney Crosby and Connor Bedard, the way that Crosby won that draw with authority, clean, hard, right back to Ryan Graves, like he won that face-off. And I'm thinking to myself, has Sidney Crosby been thinking about that opening draw all season long like the schedule comes out it's Chicago Pittsburgh on opening night and Connor Bedard drafted by the Chicago Blackhawks you know you're getting that as the opening draw you know Elliot and I probably should have asked Crosby about this um if we were smarter uh when we talked to him in Vegas at the NHL players tour did you not get the sense that Crosby had been thinking about that face-off all summer long and there was no way he was going to lose that draw. Much like when Sidney Crosby started in the NHL, he was getting gobbled up regularly at the face-off dot. Immense frustration for Sidney Crosby, who could pretty much do whatever he wanted all over the ice whenever he wanted to do it, except when the puck dropped. That's where he had problems. And you'll recall the off-seasons and buckets of pucks and dropping. McDavid went through the same thing. Uh, hard for a young center. It's skill and it's strength as well. 
and Crosby really owned that face-off. Owned him a few times as well on the uh, on the face-off thought. But speaking of face-offs, uh, something I want to play here in advance of Elliot dropping by here in a couple of moments. So before uh, before puck drop, uh, microphone is hot on referee Kelly Sutherland, and we'll play the audio. Some thought it was cheesy. Some thought it was cheeky. I loved it. I love stuff like this. I'm a sucker for it all the time. And watching this yesterday reminded me of a historical referee, someone by the name of Mickey Ion. I'll tell you that story in a second. But first, let's hear last night. This is Kelly Sutherland in advance of the puck drop between Sidney Crosby and Connor Bedard. Bedard and Crosby about to take the opening face-off in a moment Connor Bedard has been dreaming about for a long time. Welcome back for another season. Connor, welcome to the NHL, man. Okay, guys, it's showtime. Let's have a great game. Kelly Sutherland with the appropriate start to this one. Okay, so I loved that moment. I, I love moments like that. And I always uh, I, I think back, you know, one of my favorite hockey books of all time is a book about officials. It's a book specifically about referees, and it's written by Dick Irvin. By the way, Dick Irvin has written two of my favorite hockey books of all time. This is one of them. It's called Tough Calls. The other is called Behind the Bench, uh, where he views uh, a number of different coaches. Dick is a, an absolute treasure, um, certainly when it comes to hockey history. And in this book, he tells the story of Mickey Ion. Now, Mickey Ion started officiating in 1911 in Vancouver. Uh, the Patrick brothers hired him in the old West Coast League, the Pacific West Coast League, uh, and he officiated there. Um, Mickey, <laughs> Mickey was known to punch fans. Yes, you heard that right. Mickey was known to punch fans who were getting on him too much. Uh, there was actually one time in Vancouver he went into the stands to confront someone and punch them uh, after getting harassed too much. But the one thing that I always think about when I think of Mickey Ion, he was in the group of the first officials to enter into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, whenever Mickey Ion was was working with younger officials, he would gather them at center ice. And we heard Kelly Sutherland yesterday. We've heard Wes McCauley do, do similar, similar things as well. Kelly Sutherland last night talking to Sidney Crosby and talking to Connor Bedard. But what Mickey Ion would do is he would call the young officials to center ice and he would hold up a puck. And he would say, gentlemen, in my hand is a hockey puck. And I want you to understand something. The minute I drop this thing, the three of us become the only sane people in this building. Everybody else will lose their minds. Players on either side, coaches on either side, fans in the stands. Everybody would lose our mind. We become the only sane people in this building. And all I have to do is drop this little round black thing. Elliot Friedman from 32 Thoughts and Hockey Night in Canada joins me now. How are you doing today, Freach? So, yeah, I have a couple of things after that uh, mini-sermonette. Uh, <laughs> n- n- number okay. one, is that introduction say that you right now, you and I, are the only sane people in the building? Is that what you're trying to say? And number two... Not a chance. If hockey, if hockey really wanted to grow, maybe the referee should go into the fans and the crowd and fighting people because that would get eyeballs. Those clips would oh, go viral. Oh, that would get... Yeah, well, Mickey Ion is the uh, the godfather of all of that, and his his antics were well known. 
uh, through the 20s and, and 30s. And then when the, the Lester and Frank Patrick League uh, collapsed in the late 20s, he uh, made the jump into the NHL. And he was like, before Bill Chadwick, and here comes history lesson, Bill Chadwick was the official that came up with the hand signals, you know, slashing, hooking, all of that. Before Bill Chadwick, who was nicknamed the Big Whistle, Mickey Ion was the guy. Like, before Chadwick, there was Mickey Ion. And he was, like, we talk about, like, tough officials. And to me, Jay Shares may have been the toughest linesman of all time. Like, when Jay Shares broke up a fight and had that grip on you, fight was over. Like, you could not struggle. The fight was over. Mickey Ion was, like, that tough uh, a referee back in the day as well. And I'm with you. If the odd referee wants to take a swing at a fan, well, I'll just look the other way or maybe tie my shoes and say play on. I what have to say, Jeff, your show you is make? not complete without a Jay Sharer story. <laughs> you know I love Jay Sharers. Um, what did you make of Conor Bedard? Oh, by the way, what did you make of Kelly Sutherland and the sermonette before the game? And what did you make of Conor Bedard game one? Well, you remember when they did this a couple of years ago, the first time they did it, like a lot of people mocked it. And I was like, no, I like, why not try something a little different? Why not do something yeah. that is is not the same? And I'm glad they stuck with it because a lot of people mocked it. And uh, the fact that they did it again, I, I really liked it. I and it went viral in a lot of places. And I thought it was yeah. I thought it was a really good I thought it was a really good touch. It was something a little different. It was not the same as we normally do. And I think those are the like it's a small thing, but it's a big thing. I think those are the same. That yeah. uh, that those are the boundaries you have to push. Try things that are different. Try things that are different. More microphones on officials, uh, sermonettes before games, and then the puck drops. And Crosby, you know, I was saying before you came on, we probably should have asked Crosby this. You know, you look at the schedule in Chicago and Pittsburgh is going to be the opening game. And, you know, at the uh, NHL Players Tour, Colby recorded that uh, the feature that aired last night with him sitting on the couch on the, on the rink uh, with Connor Bedard and Sidney Crosby, and they go through their competition, etc. I look back on yeah, it now. Wait a second. Hold on a second. And Hold I probably should have said... Do you do you think? Because I a hundred percent believe this. Do you think that Crosby remembered that thing with Colby that he lost it? Hundred percent, he did. Hundred percent, he did. But but I'll go I'll go you one further. I I wonder if, and I'm not going to say he was obsessed about it all summer long, like it's a, a Rocky movie and he's out in the wilderness doing, you know, push-ups and running at 5 a.m. and, you know, like doing like log toss to build up his body. But I wonder how much Crosby was thinking, I know I'm taking the opening face-off with this kid and when I was a rookie, I got gobbled up at the face-off circle. There is no chance that Bedard is going to win that opening draw because everybody in hockey is watching this thing, and I'm not ready to hand over my title yet. Yeah, and the, I agree. I'm, I'm a thousand percent in agreement, a billion percent in agreement with you. And I have to watch it again. Because he has a move he usually uses to win face-offs, I don't think he did it. He didn't slap it on his forehand. Did he go backhand? I think he went backhand. I have to look at this yeah, again. Yeah, he went, he went backhand, he went backhand he, right to Ryan Graves. Because he has a he has a move that is like everyone knows he's going to do it, but he, it's very hard to yeah. beat it. Where he slaps at the puck on his forehand, so not only did he win the draw, but he's, in, in case Bedard was expecting him to do that, he wasn't doing it. He's still really good, Elliot. Um, I, I want to get your thoughts on on Bedard himself. So. 
the, the stat line is, you know, one assist and five shots, 21-29 of ice time, only two for two for 13 on the draw. But the one thing that stood out to me about Bedard, we see players in their first National Hockey League game in a lot of ways, they stay in their lane. They try, yeah. they play their first game as if they're just trying not to make a mistake. That wasn't Bedard. Like he, no. used, when he had the puck, he used everybody on the ice. He was firing it to wingers. He was firing it to defensemen. He was going to the net hard, rebounds, all of it, shots under the triangle, all of it. Like he did not look like this is my first game and I just don't want to embarrass myself. Like game one, Bedard went for it. I loved it. Yeah, you know, I, we've talked about this, but I just think he's a really impressive person and personality. Um, and nothing that I saw yesterday would make me change that. You know, he could have had three or four points. There were some plays he made that just didn't get finished, yeah. uh, unfortunately for him. Um, I, he did not, as you said, he did not look out of place. You know, I like the coverage of it. Like, I had some people asking me, do you, do you think it's too much? And, you know, I said, no. I think, like, if this was any other sport, like uh, a number one pick who – has a chance to be a generational player. This is how they get covered, yeah. and we have to we have to break the chains a little bit. So, um, I I really I like I like everything about this guy that I've seen so far. There's like he has the habits of a winner, and last night they translated on the ice. He did everything but score. Uh, and he almost forgot his stick and warm up. Um, and now, did you see I, what he did said like, about that? What What did he say? He said he didn't forget it. It's that he puts it in a place and it was moved. So wherever he put it, it was moved from that spot. So he had to run and get a new one. He claims he did not forget. I'll tell you what. There are, I mean, so many players are sensitive about, I mean, a lot of things. But, I mean, you'll recall how players are really sensitive about other people touching their sticks. I mean, yeah. there have been some players. I was reading this. I was reading this a couple of summers ago. I can't remember who the player was. It was a, uh, someone like from the '50s who didn't want their blade on either the uh, on on the floor in the dressing room, so they would put their sticks upside down in the room. The only thing the blade should touch was the ice, so it was the butt end that went on the floor and the blade up in the air. And someone moved it, and the guy, like, he was older by that point, but he retired when he saw that in the room. He's like, that's it. My blade's only supposed to touch the ice. That's it. I'm, and he, like, legit retired. Um, players are goofy. Man, I, thought, I remember I Doug you Gilmore. you did bad temper tantrums. <laughs> well, listen, I remember the stories about in, in Toronto how Doug Gilmore would, would torture Ken Baumgartner by touching his sticks all the time because Baumgartner went banana sandwich if anybody touched his sticks. And Gilmore, sure enough, mixed them around, touch, you know, Doug, right? And would touch yes. his sticks and just absolutely drive him crazy. So the idea of moving uh, moving Connor Bedard's stick on opening night, I know it's a small thing. We might look at it and say, well, that's goofy, but you know what players are like about their sticks? Oh, yeah. No, no, but I thought it was interesting that he was going to make sure everybody knew that he hadn't forgot a stick. Yeah. Well, him and Korczynski forgot their helmets, and I loved it. What about you? Yeah, I, I thought it was great. I'm, I'm, it's a one-time. You know that's not going to happen again. That'll be a, a one-time thing, and they'll say, okay, where are the next time? But again, I thought it was I thought it was a really nice touch. Like, if I ever got the chance to play my first NHL game, then I could go out, and the veteran players on my team said, go out there with no helmet, we'll deal with it. I'm all for it. Yeah. I would love that. Skating on the uh, ice like Guy Lafleur. Cool. Our- 
Oh, just the best. First of all, just to have feathers like that must be nice. Just to feel that yeah. uh, Andy Travis that WKRP, true. very very hip reference there, Merrick, uh, with the with the feathers breezing through the air. Um, before we focus on games here, uh, something you mentioned yesterday, and uh, it's Vancouver, so it's going to get a lot of coverage, and that is Connor Garland, uh, who's been granted permission to talk to teams now. Yeah. From what from what I understand, Connor Garland has not asked for a trade, but it's yeah. not exactly a secret that Connor Garland's name has been out there for quite some time. Even going back to when Jim Rutherford first went to uh, Vancouver um, after things fell apart in Pittsburgh, uh, he has this year and two more years at four point nine million dollars. Uh, trades are tough to make early in the season because teams want to know what they have first. I mean, Ken Holland talks about U.S. Thanksgiving before making up your mind on, on deals or what your team is. Where do you see this one heading, and how did you greet this news before you reported it? Um, I, I don't think it was an enormous surprise, uh, I have to say. Um, look, I, I think the merit, like, obviously he came there in a big deal, when the regime changed, I think, uh, like, look, like the general manager who acquires you, the manager who acquires you is always going to have greater emotional tie to you. And I think when, you know, the, the Rutherford, Alvin, uh duos took over in Vancouver, they didn't have the same attachment. And I think that's kind of mm-hmm. what we're seeing here. Like, if you watch him right now, He's kind of in a spot in the roster until Mikheyev is, is healthy enough to play. So you can see on a team that's really tight to the cap, you can see where this could potentially be going. And, you know, so I think they've been looking at trying to move him. As you said, it's been very hard. They got a new agent, uh, Judd Moldaver, like really recently. Like, to see a player change agents right before the season in the middle of a contract, like, if you're just coming, like, yeah. one thing you learn about agent changes is if it's, at the, if it's at the end of a deal or you're heading into the last year of a deal and you're thinking about your next move, yes. If you've just renegotiated a new contract and you're not happy with it, yes, that can happen. Like, for a player to change the agents with this much time left on their contract and right before the season, I'm sure it's happened before but I couldn't think of one. And, you know, sometimes the team, they make all their efforts, they try. You know, sometimes it's, it's not the worst thing. It doesn't always work, but it's not the worst thing to have someone else make an attempt. And I, from what I understand, this is how I think it got out, he's being really aggressive here. Now, people ask me, how often does it work? Not always. But in Vancouver, there is a very good example. The Roberto Luongo trade to Florida happened after an agent switch. And that was Pat Persson. Uh, he became Luongo's agent, and he moved, the, he moved the needle. Now, ultimately, the two teams got the deal done, but he moved the needle. And he got that thing going between the Canucks and the Panthers. So it's not impossible, but it's tricky. Jack Eichel. Speaking of Pat Brisson, Jack Eichel's another one. After an agent yes, switch. That's, that's very true. 
That's very true. Would be the uh, would be the latest. Um, a couple of things. Uh, Anaheim claims Ross Johnson, big tough hockey player. I, when I when I saw that Elliot yesterday, my first thought was um, how quickly Pat Verbeek let go of Nick Delorier at the trade deadline two years ago, and I don't know if this is his way of compensating for it. We know that we know what the score is for Anaheim this year, and they have a lot of young kids. And we know what games against the Arizona Coyotes have been like uh, in the last few seasons, specifically. How much of a reflection of those games is the claim Anaheim getting Ross Johnson? Well, I think it, I think it's a lot. I think you want to, you know, your young players. You know, don't forget, like the remember a couple of years ago that the Anaheim Arizona thing. The Anaheim guys got pushed around. Um, you know, Pat Verbeek, as you mentioned, not exactly a guy who's afraid of tough hockey. Greg Cronin, I mean, he might fight Johnston in practice. Um, not a guy who's afraid of <laughs> tough hockey. Uh, you know, look, like there's obviously less fighting than there used to be, and some of that is for very good reason. But, uh, you know... It can still be a very mean game, which I don't mind at all. And you have to at least have a situation where, I mean, it's not the same as it used to be. It's not like 1994 where Gino Ojik is, is roughing up uh, Doug Gilmore and Wendell Clark skates over and says to Pavel Bure, if, if your guy doesn't leave our guy alone, you're getting it next and everything calms down. But, you know, you still, it's, it's never bad to have a situation where if you feel your guys are getting roughed up, you can do something about it. Uh, okay, games tonight. Uh, seven Canadian teams in action. Uh, Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa, Winnipeg, Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver. Um, you know, a couple of marquee matchups here. The Habs and the Leafs early. But I want to ask you about Ottawa. You know, yep. we thought that... I think a lot of us did, that the Shane Pinto situation would be resolved by now. Uh, mm-hmm. It is not. It looks like they'll be going a player short as well. Um, your thoughts on what's happening with the Ottawa Senators tonight in advance uh, of their game against the Carolina Hurricanes? Um, I, I think that... I, I Look, the one thing you always have to be careful now is when I woke up this morning... I don't believe Shane Pinto had asked for a trade, but I don't believe a contract was imminent. So to me, that's status quo. But you just never know. Like, it changes with one phone call. So I'll just go by what happened this morning. I think the biggest challenge you have right now is that the frustration boils over. Like, Shane Pinto is a player. He wants to play. And his body clock says... Right now, you should be getting ready to play your season opener tonight. That's a, that's a really tough place. When you have a negotiation that's, that's gone this long, this is where you most have to be careful when you're the team especially because the player. this is where the player gets angriest. He's not playing. So mm-hmm. I, I think you have to be careful. Look, I don't think they're that far apart. Like I've, I, people, I've had some people say to me, do you think there's a deal done and Ottawa just has to make a move? No, I don't think that's the case. I don't think the deal is done. So, um, you know, I think they just have to 
hammer it out. And tonight, it's it's Ridley Gregg's opportunity. Uh, an old twist on the line is, you know, one man's injury is another man's opportunity. Um, I think that's that's what Ridley Gregg has to look at. You know, Norris, like they said yesterday, they're not putting him on LTIR. Yeah. I, I think they're hopeful he can play next week, but you know it's 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 dicey just in the sense that we didn't even think this was going to be an issue. All right, um, I'm going to talk to Eric Engels here at the bottom of the hour, cover off Montreal. Later, I'm going to talk to Gord Selleck and cover off the uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs. So I, I do want to ask you about a couple of other Canadian teams in action here in the couple of moments I have left with you. Uh, okay. The early game, uh, early games: Ottawa, Carolina, Montreal, Toronto. Uh, Winnipeg, Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, uh, a little bit later on this evening. Um, you know, I, I was on with Halford and Bruff today, and they are asking what you and I thought about the Vancouver Canucks, and I said, I think Elliot's a little bit higher on Vancouver than I am. I look at the Pacific Division, and it's killers. It's what the, uh, to be honest with you, Elliot, it's what the Central used to be. Um, and it's it's going to be tough with so many different players on different peaking timelines, etc. Et and then there's the uh, Elias Pettersson situation on top of uh, all of it. How do you see the Vancouver Canucks this season? I mean, we've talked plenty about Edmonton and Copper Bust. Uh, Winnipeg, we talked about a lot yesterday with the, the two signings of the goaltender in the center. But how do you see the Vancouver Canucks this season? Well, I think they're going to be better. I, I do. Um, you know, I, I think I'm really excited to see Demko. You know, when I make a bad pick uh, or a pick that doesn't turn out right, Jeff, I don't run away from it. I go right back to it. I think Demko's going to have a big year. I think Patterson's going to have a big year. Uh, I think that Miller will have a big year. I think their best players, Hughes, I think they're all going to have big years. Uh, I really do. I think there was a lot of disappointment and embarrassment about how last year went. And, I, you know, I know yesterday the Garland thing took a lot of hot air, but I just don't think the team is going to be that bothered by it. I think that uh, – I just think they're going to be better prepared. Last year it was very clear at the beginning of the year there were a lot of distractions. I just don't think they were – in the right headspace to start the season. I don't think that's going to be the case this year. I think it's going to be very different. I think to me, you know, I was talking to someone about them yesterday and because they were talking about what, you know, what they could get for Garland or what they'd be looking at. I think they're looking at a D. I think the biggest thing there is they're talking about defense by committee. And he said, it is really hard to do that. And he said that hockey players, they like role. They like knowing what's expected of them and what their jobs are. And he said, you know, things change. You know, someone has a bad night. Someone gets hurt. But generally, he feels that the most successful teams have clearly defined roles for their players. And he says he understands what Tockett's trying to do because that's what he has. But he just thinks, like, when you're going up against a team, for example, like Edmonton and all their firepower, it's very hard to play defense by committee. So, and he says, that's Vancouver's challenge. And I thought it was an interesting point that I just wanted to raise. 
Let me, um, at your latest, 32 Thoughts blog at uh, sportsnet.ca, we'll finish on this one. You mentioned Pat Kane. Um, you mentioned Florida. You mentioned Buffalo as well. Uh, those uh, stories are things that we've talked about plenty on the podcast and elsewhere. Here's a question for you. Should we throw the Dallas Stars into that as well? Well, I think why not? I, I think, like, I, I just heard the amount of interest in him has been enormous. Like, and, but the, the thing I think that Kane is going to do is he's going to wait to see who's good. And then he'll use his heart to tell him, you know, where he wants to go out of all this. You know, I think Dallas makes a lot of sense. I know Florida's been, people keep telling me Florida's aggressive, Florida's aggressive. But, mm-hmm. you know, the one thing about Buffalo is, it's the most romantic thing, right? Uh, him going back there. And, you know, like, I've had a couple people now tell me, just don't discount the Kevin Adams factor. He was Kane's first roommate in Chicago. He would always invite Kane uh, over for dinner when they weren't on the road. I understand that they've kept up a pretty good relationship. Um, I just had people tell me, if Buffalo's good, and they should be, do not discount the history between those two guys. Understood. I, I, I do look at the Dallas right side, and after Joe Pavelski, it's the Donoff and Tidal Andrea, and say to myself, I know the cap space issue is an issue, but hmm, when you have someone like Pat Kane available and you're the Dallas Stars and legitimate, you're a, you're a contender. Uh, to do some damage in the playoffs and maybe make it to the Stanley Cup. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, Stories to follow. Uh, Day two of the NHL season on the horizon later on tonight. All right, enjoy the rest of your afternoon, Freach. We'll uh, we'll check in tomorrow. I have one last question for you. Okay. Were you feeling amorous when you finished the blog? Uh, well, I saw you, uh, I'll tell you what. So when I finished reading your blog and you write this about is not Prince, a no, now, I, I like this Prince, <laughs> uh, and, and you talked and you talked about, uh, emotions and you talked about making love. And I'm like, this is an interesting twist on 32 thoughts. And immediately the minute, cause you mentioned Prince and you talked about the book that you read. Uh, I went and I put on the live version of my favorite Prince song, of all time, which is uh, I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man. So thank you for sending me down for about 20 minutes this morning uh, (laughs) down Prince Avenue where I went and uh, and, uh, and, and listened to some of my favorite Prince songs. You want to just sort of share with the audience quickly as a teaser for your blog what you're referring to here? Sure. So there's a a book I read uh, about Prince this summer. It's called The Beautiful Ones. And the author... uh, Prince picked the author after a pretty long process. Um, unfortunately, I think they only met twice before Prince died. And so what they did was they finished the project and in a very unique way to make it work, they took a lot of the handwritten notes they found from Prince, like his thoughts, uh, his, um, his lyrics and the scratch marks and fix this and this is what I'm thinking and some old photos. And it is, it, I was really... Uh, spellbound by it. I'm not the most creative person, so I admire really creative people. And I was just fascinated and engrossed uh, by this book. It was 
I'd recommend it to anyone. It's a bit of a different read, but I, it really, it really stuck with me. You know, one of, one of the lines will end on this one. Uh, according to Prince a, uh, uh, quote, a good ballad should always put you in the mood for making love. That was his goal. To me, that's about half an hour to 45 minutes of begging, Elliot. I don't I think <laughs> me and Prince were kind of different. Well, that, you're getting off easy. But nonetheless, <laughs> begging and housework and chores and go to Canadian <laughs> Tire and pick up the dry cleaning. And then it's a maybe. Uh, on that, we'll wrap. Thanks, Fridge. Enjoy your afternoon. <laughs> All right. Take care, Jeff. <laughs> Uh, from Mickey Irons to uh, the Prince. That's where the first segment went today.